You're listening to And what is poppin' everybody? You're listening to the Good Pop Culture Club episode 152. Uh, my name is Marvin Yu, and joining me to talk about all the good pop because through our days we have our most, the most professional of culture editors, Han Wen. Hey Han. Hey hey. Hey. Uh, Jess, of course, is not joining us this week because she is off at Campfest up in the Bay Area, busy film festivaling. I have been freed from my film festival duties, so um, we are back. Um, if you hadn't noticed, we did skip last week um, because it just it just didn't work out. We Han were and I were very, like, we were, were trying being, to record up until like the very last moment. Where it just it's just not going to work. We're being very busy Asians. This is our <laughs> month. It is our month. How's how's everything going in um in in your neck of the woods as a editor of media? Are you like up to your ears in Asian stuff? Yes and no. Um, my my desire to cover more Asian things, especially since a lot of really great titles have been coming out this month, is very high. But the amount of people I have to write it with uh, enough expertise is not that high, and so I have to be very choosy <laughs> about like where I del- you know plan things and like uh, you know Exo Kitty is coming out this this month and so is american born chinese and so i'm like well you know we also don't cover a lot of ya but i was like we need to still do something i don't know it's it's been a lot but you will hear some of the asian things that i've been consuming (laughs) at least and then um see you know at least i will feel like i'm doing it for my own personal you know benefit (laughs) but yeah sometimes it doesn't always translate into what i can get written on the site yeah, I mean, we're, we're blessed to have a lot of really cool Asian-American stuff coming down the pipe, at least soon in terms of like TV and streaming, which is interesting because we are also in the middle of like what is potentially going to be a pretty major um, writer strike, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be there for the long haul. And like the last writer strike made a profound impact on the way TV is made and consumed. And yes. I don't know. I'm I'm a little worried about all of the progress we made over the last few years being wiped out because, and not because of the strike, but because of the corporations like taking the absolute like worst lessons from the strike, which is using the strike to like go back to basics, quote unquote. And in terms of basics, it's like let's just play it safe and do like what used to work, right? Which is kind of what we're seeing in terms of like streaming and like what consolidation has done to the streaming landscape. Um, like what Zaslav has done to the Warner properties. And I mean, we'll probably go through this in our, do we want this this month? But mm-hmm. we lost a lot of shows this week. Yeah. I mean, there's always a process of um, cancellations and then renewals and stuff like that. But it does feel like um well, honestly, industry-wide, including in the publishing and media industry, especially the industry that covers entertainment, there's been a lot of slashing and burning. <laughs> and um, it's it's it, it, on one hand, it's not terribly surprising that some of these shows are getting axed. But at this, uh, on the other hand, that's just way more jobs 
being lost, and it's kind of a scary time for the industry. So, right. and there seems to be uh, a pattern as to which shows in particular are being axed. Obviously, yes. Not only do they go with <laughs> this is what we know works, you know, like let's dig up something from the eighties and reboot it, but you know, if you're rebooting stuff from the eighties, most likely it's going to be a very white property, <laughs> and that does mean a lot of things getting canceled are by or or featuring people of color, um, or more. Uh, I don't know, more inclusive, you know, uh, thematic themes. So it's it's not it's kind of discouraging. <laughs> yeah. So I guess we'll see how everything shakes out. But for the time being, um, as always, we at Good Pop are pro the unions. Um, writers do deserve to get paid for their work. And writers do a lot. I, people don't realize how much work goes into like just making the shows. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on because like I mentioned, the strike it's it's going to be for the long haul, probably. Yeah, it's the last writer's strike was nearly 100 days. So that's three months plus. <laughs> that really shook the industry. It m- meant that there was an increase in um, unscripted content, which is reality shows. Hello. Um, it gave us Donald Trump because that's where Celebrity Apprentice came through. Um, so we've already started seeing some of that programming. We heard that we, you know, as of today, that we're going to get uh, Golden Bachelor, which means oldies, um, older, more mature people in The Bachelor, which had been, you know, something people have talked about for a while. But now they're like reviving it, that idea, because they need content. You know so, what? Yeah. I might watch that. I would totally watch it. <laughs> I just hope that they are more inclusive. I don't know if I want to see a bunch of old white people. That's like, true. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I still might check it out just to see if there's different ways that they speak and stuff like that. Or like um, because, old white people interacting with old people of color, which Right. Well, ooh, that would be scary. Yeah. But, you know, but you know like how every reality show, everyone's an influencer, you can't really expect that with older people. Maybe there are some older influencers, but not all. So I'm I think that the way they interact might be different. Yeah, um, I want adorable old people, not like cantankerous yes. racist old people. We we want the Betty Whites, you know? Um <laughs> I'm open to it. I will withhold judgment until I watch it. Well, this week on the Good Pop Culture Club, we are leaving the world of American media and entering the world of anime. Um, <laughs> that's right. We're talking about Yay. Makoto Shinkai's new film, Suzume, um, which has been in theaters for a while now. Um, very excited. This is my first Shinkai film. So looking forward to discussing that with you later, Han. But before we get to Suzume, let's find out what pop culture is beginning us through this week. Um, Han. I'm not surprised by your pick, but uh, tell us what's popping. Yeah. uh, So actually, I had quite a lot of things in the past two weeks. And so it was a shame that we missed last week because I also watched Black Knight, which is a South Korean show um, on Netflix. I also listened to the podcast that Marvin had recommended, California Love K-Pop Dreaming. Um, Very informative. I highly recommend that podcast. But the one that I settled on to really talk about this week is past lives. Um, While we were being very busy being professional Asians, I also was an extracurricular Asian, um, went to uh, the uh, film festival. Which one was it? (laughs) LA Pacific Asian. LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. And um, they had a screening of past lives, which is the didactic directorial debut of Celine Song starring Greta Lee and uh, Tao Yu. Uh, 
I I love this film. This is something I maybe we talked about this uh, as the trail when the trailer dropped, but basically it's a film that's out of Sundance. Um, it got picked up by our friends A twenty four, which is not terribly surprising. Um, and I I think. If you watch the trailer, you kind of know what you're getting into, which is basically Greta Lee plays a woman who was born in South Korea. But when she was a child, she and her family immigrated to the U.S. in order to have more opportunities. She became a screen uh, a, a playwright um, while her childhood best friend, who they kind of was like, oh, it's your young boyfriend or whatever. You know, he stayed back in South Korea. Um, they reconnect a couple times later on when they're adults and how they reconnect, you know, is is sort of the question because it's not like they have been talking all this time. So um, they have a lot of fond memories of each other. Um, the way a lot of things are played out, you know, especially if you're watching a Korean drama, <laughs> you would think that this is a uh, fated to be um, a love story. The thing is, she's married. You know, she's married to a white guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the trailer... I know they had to, you know, build the vibe, but the trailer had a lot of like very tensiony scenes, and it really felt like, you know, you ask yourself, right, is is she emotionally cheating on her husband at this moment with her childhood best friend? <laughs> it does have like romance vibes, right? Very like maybe yeah. what I imagine persuasion is supposed to feel like. Yeah, there is definitely um, yearning. There's there are fraught moments of staring and silences and like little cute you know ways that they talk to each other there's definitely a familiarity and comfort even though they have been parted for several years um and so it's kind of like this is very you know much based on her own experience um a lot of things even though she is not really nora that's the name of the character um there are enough things. Her father is a filmmaker in the movie, so it's her in real life. And her um, childhood so best friend is Korean yeah. drama worthy handsome man. I, well, I mean, aren't they all? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so funny to see Tao Yu like playing like shy and kind of like self-effacing and not like you know idol worthy good looks. <laughs> um, but you are right that there are a lot of like tensions and pauses, and the dialogue is. For me, I love it so much. She is, you know, as I mentioned, she's a playwright. So her her words are like super deliberate and on point. The dialogue is fantastic. Um, I actually found it incredibly surprisingly funny at many moments. Uh, this is probably a film that if you only like K-dramas for the super happy, like, you know, the the kid you met in the womb is, well, not in the womb, but like, Whoa. <laughs> well, Whoa. the kid you met, when you were born, you know, next to each other, that's literally, <laughs> literally uh, a plot right now on the Good Bad Mother. Um, is right, like fated. the faded, the faded yes. lovers, right? Like we're yeah. tied together by the red string of fate, and right. And I would just have to say, <laughs> Celine Song is an a Korean American, <laughs> so <laughs> there's definitely going to be some things that are breaking with that tradition. Um, not trying to spoil anything, but just more of like setting expectations. I still think that no matter what, um, I since I saw it with an audience, I thought the reception was really great. The reactions, all the laughs, all the kind of like cringe, you know, or <laughs> gasps were really, really good. Um, I love this film, and it, it it was definitely made me feel things, even if um, I wasn't certain what I felt by the end. Um, but I did think I sat with it for a day, and I I ended up 
feeling different things even the next day. So yeah, I when it comes out June 2nd, I believe, and, and then it will open up wider. I highly recommend um, checking it out. Yeah. And I do like that the white husband is played by John Magaro, who is the guy mm-hmm. who I usually root for, except for the couple of times he plays like a jerk or creep he- on Umbrella Academy. Like he's typically like I really like his character from First Cow. Yeah. Oh, he was great in First Cow. And you know what? He's great in this. Like this is essentially a three hander. Uh, when you think about it, because even though you see like her family a little bit, it's <clears> mainly uh, Nora, um, Tao Yu's character, Sung, and then Arthur, who is the husband. I mean, he doesn't come in until like a later act, but he still has an important part. And I think it's also a, maybe a good thing to think about. Like, yes, we talk um, a lot about like rooting against the white guy <laughs> in these in these, you know, the content that we watch. But at the same time, the reality is we are all Americans or, well, Marvin's a, Korea, uh, a Canadian. But um, and there's a lot of um, interracial marriage going on. So, like, what are you going to do? Hate your friends, you know, husband or <laughs> wife? Um, so it's it's just I just think it's so very well done. Um, I had the feelings. It gave me all the feelings. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that, and I'm sure we'll be discussing past lives in detail in a future episode. I'm glad that it has the Han Win seal of approval. Yeah, I it feel was, like our I, tastes are pretty pretty closely aligned. So yeah, especially when it comes to <laughs> I guess this is considered an indie film. Um, yeah, anyways. I don't mind a quote unquote deliberately paced film. Oh, I thought it was I mean, gorgeous. you and I are on the same page. Are we both like Green Knight? Yeah, Jess yeah, the, yeah. Jess is the one that I'm curious what she'll I, and feel I about still it. <laughs> adore decision to leave, and I know Jess still has issues with the man being a horrible person. But I'm like, yeah, he's horrible. But well, weirdly enough, decision to leave. Tail you was in that too. Um, Wait, so, he was was he young detective that gets stabbed? I I think so because oh. I remember watching the show, uh, watching the movie, and I'm like, wait, why is this like looking <laughs> guy? <laughs> so, and I think there was running involved. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I'm gonna rewatch that. Um, anyway, that's for me. Uh, what's popping with you, Marvin? Well, we talked about um, the last writer strike giving way to the age of the reality television show, um, but it also gave way to like good reality TV too. Mm-hmm. And right now, there's nothing better than well, you know us, Top Chef and Great British Bake Off, which is why I was super excited to find that there is an American version. Yeah, how is that? I was curious, but I have not checked it out. Yeah, it's an exclusive on Roku, um, so you can only watch it if you have the Roku app or the Roku box. But it's the Great American Baking Show, and it is a legit, like, I know there used to be a Great American Bake Off that was kind of, um, yeah. it kind of just flew on the radar, kind of like the um, the classic Dungeons & Dragons movie from the 2000s. Like, it mm. happened, people, it didn't really make much of a splash, people kind of, you know, bounced off of it. But this one is, um, it's a follow-up to like the Holiday Celebrities Edition that came out um, earlier this year. The mm. judges are still Paul and Prue, and the hosts are um, Ellie Kemper uh, from, um, what's that show where she's like in the bunker? Kimmy Schmidt. Kimmy Schmidt, right. I stopped watching after the first season. Oh, uh, same. Um, although I did remember liking it, um, except I, for the... For the Asian guy, The Tina right? Fey of it all, right? Yes, yes. Um, but... And Zach Cherry, who is... Um, I know him from the Spider-Man movies, but apparently he's been like a social media guy for a long time. Um, yeah. Which they're, they do a good job. And compared to like the skeeviness of the last few seasons of British Bake Off, a mm-hmm. pretty welcome departure because both of their, you know, their personalities are more sweet and mm-hmm. silly, which I like a little bit better than like, um, 
you know, the, the Matt Lucas Matt, of it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other thing is, this is American, right? So yeah. I'm not saying that Americans never do bad things to food, but we are a more deliberately inclusive um, <laughs> country when it comes to stuff on TV. You know, yeah. whether or not that's true reflected, reflection on real life, different story. But yeah, we try. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it looks like it's still filmed in England because it looks oh. like the same tent and set of the original show. Uh, but all the contestants are American. So it's a smaller cast, only nine bakers, I think. Um, and one of the biggest things I noticed is half the cast is Asian. This is a very go Asian season. Um, there's two East Asians or three East Asians, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, one South Asian, which is like the biggest ratio of Asians on any Bake Off season. Usually like there's like maybe one or two, right? Right. Because we were like gaga over the uh the Houston um top chef season because that had a lot of Asians and that was yeah. not that wasn't half, but I mean it was a bigger cast. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh this sounds exciting then. Yeah. And the challenges are are, as you may imagine, more American focused. Um the first week is instead of biscuit week, it's cookie week. <laughs> because what is a biscuit anyway? Right. Um, I've only watched three episodes so far. There's six total in the season, um, and so far it's giving it's giving Bake Off vibes, which is what you want, right? You don't want yeah. like an imitation. And the bakers are actually pretty competent. Like even the ones that require like bread sculptures and like scene cakes, all the bakers are actually really bringing it. The showstoppers are all super well done, um, which wasn't hasn't been the case for like. I feel like a couple seasons. I'm also curious because it's American baked goods, which I actually don't like so much. <laughs> um, what, like, what's an example of something besides cookies? Like, um, well, for bread, they start with a babka challenge, which is uh, I guess ah, a Polish bread, um, yes. and then for their <laughs> for their, they still have the problem where they slip in a couple um, cooking challenges every once in a while. Oh. So the technical for the bread week is a slider, which, you know. That's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you include meat, it needs to be encased, you know, like if you talked about like, I don't know, um, some sort of fritter or something. I yeah. It, it, it's kind of weird. <laughs> a, a slider is just, you're making them do bread and meat. That's weird. Yeah. Um, oh, for <laughs> and for this is how you know it's the American season. For cake week, uh, they had to make a sheet cake. Because <laughs> like what's Costco more sheet? American than sheet cake for every birthday in the office, right? It's that's very true. Um, <laughs> you get the Costco sheet cake. I don't know if you've been following that discourse about how you order a Costco cake, but yes, um, it 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 really is like. I guess they could have done cupcakes. Um, the only other thing that was a tradition in one of my um, uh, companies was uh, within my direct department, we had a tradition of getting fudgy the whale cake, <laughs> uh, which is an ice cream cake um, in the shape of a whale with a cookie. Is it from, um, is it from somewhere like specific? Because I've never heard yes. of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from, uh, oh, I forgot the name of it. Is it Carvel? No. I'd, I'd have to look it up. But <laughs> that's actually been mentioned on, I think, 30 Rock before. Speaking of wow. uh, Tina Fey. Yeah. And so I had never had it until I joined this company. And then 
it just became a tradition within my department. And so I here's the thing. Like, I told them many times I don't really love sweets. And so <laughs> whenever there was my birthday and I got a fudgy the whale, I'm just kind of like, okay, I will force myself to eat something, some of this. And at least I had some chocolate in it, which helps. But, yeah. like, I really couldn't do much with it. Like, I had to give it away. I mean, that's the thing with, like, Costco sheet cake, right? It's just way, that frosting is way too sweet for, like, the Asian tongue. Yeah, like, I just... I I mentioned it up front, and yet at the same time, I still got a cake. And so I was like, you really could have just gotten me a sandwich or, you know. Uh, I mean, I just eat around the frosting. Like the cake usually well, is okay. This, well, this is an ice cream cake. Oh. And it has, like, um, chocolate, uh, sort of, like, cookie, um, like, or not Oreo, but, you know. So it, there were mo- um, good textural things that made it less sweet. Um, so I didn't mind it, but there's definitely no way I could have more than a slice. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, going Anyways. deep on that fudgy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you're a fan of the Great British Baking Show and you're you feel that void in your heart, um, check out the American version because it really does like the vibes are good. The vibes hit the mark. Um, so if so, you ha- if you have a Roku, you get this right. Otherwise, yeah, you have it's to on the specifically Roku channel, which also has all of the previous seasons of Celebrity Bake Off. Um, so the ones with like James McAvoy and Daisy Ridley and oh oh yeah okay it has all of those seasons um it has all the other like periphery Paul Hollywood shows that I have no interest in watching um yeah it's they have some pretty good programming on on that channel so yeah if you have a Roku check it out if not borrow someone's Roku and check it out (laughs) uh but yeah that's what's popping before we get to Susan May though speaking of cooking shows oh we need to check in (laughs) with Top Chef, um, with our podcast, with a podcast, Go Asian. Um, not a great couple of weeks for our Asians. Oof, yeah. <laughs> we had two back-to-back weeks where you're hoping for good stuff, and I was pretty disappointed with not only I who mean, got home, but what, like the the actual pr- um, presentation of <laughs> execution well, of... We have two episodes to catch up on. Um, the first is Restaurant Wars, the highlight of any Top Chef season. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of um, how they did it this year? Well, so it was a little bit different in that they didn't have to bring it up from um, concept and like decorating and creating their own physical environment and all that stuff. They actually had a ready restaurant for them to use, um, which kind of makes sense you know in some ways like if you're going to do this internationally maybe you don't you don't want to also source out all of that other stuff you're already you know trying to source ingredients so um that maybe took away a little bit of the excitement because sometimes i enjoyed seeing them try to put a concept together (laughs) yeah the pacing was a little weird this year wasn't it yeah it moved so quickly and yeah, they basically went straight from concept and the name to just cooking. And I was kind of like, wait, don't they need to get linens and weird leaf, weird branches to put in front of house and uh, decide who is front of house and all this other stuff? I felt like they had a staff, you know, and all this other stuff that they didn't need to train. We didn't see any of that stuff. Um, yeah. I, I mean, look, but I, I was still... For me, once I heard the concepts, I was like, well, clearly this one's better. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, we always say that. And, you know, Magical Elves do, does a great job usually of faking us out. Um, and is this one of those times <clears throat> when, like, the team that is, like, in uh-oh trouble ends up pulling through? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really, I was, I was pleasantly surprised that the team that was the favorite, that had our favorites in it, did not totally fuck it up. 
Right. And uh, here's the thing. We're down to what? Seven, eight people, eight people. Right. And so, yeah, a lot of our favorites were on one team, but a couple of them were on the other team, too. <laughs> so I felt a little bit bad because uh, we had to say goodbye to Nicole. Yeah. Um, Which I still I still blame German Tom. German Tom's the root of all of my problems on this show. We'll I talk mean, about him a little bit later, too, because he continues to be a problem on the show. That part. is fair. Um, the German Tom, I think it was his concept that was roots um, for that team. And basically, at first they were going like, well, cook from your roots of who you are. But then Nicole was like, oh, no, I want to cook from the roots of like what I learned. So instead of doing her like Chinese roots or whatever, she learned Italian. And so she just said. Uh, to do Italian, which it's okay. Um, But uh, the other team, you know, did a twist on UK food. And I feel like I enjoy it when they do an elevated twist on things. Um, So I felt like that one was just more cohesive. Also, if you're going to have Buddha on a team doing an elevated version of something, you know, it's going to be good. (laughs) And he took a lot of control. I have to say, like, he was definitely steering that ship pretty well. Um, weirdly, he didn't break, bust out a mold. I was waiting for a mold. <laughs> did not get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we lost Nicole, which means we're down to two Asians left on Top Chef, uh, Buddha and Ali, who are kind of my favorites to move on yes. to the very end. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for Buddha, Ali, and strangely, Amar and Sarah I've been really enjoying too. Well, Buddha is good. I do have to say this season, he's kind of like, pissed me off a few times with his attitude (laughs) he's Um, always been that guy though right but he just (laughs) hit it better i think on uh houston season but there are a few moments when he's fallen that i think he the first time he sort of fell he didn't take it with grace i think this time he did a little bit better but yeah so we if we're moving on to this yeah i mean you mentioned that you love it when buddha elevates something but sometimes it doesn't work out for him right and he needs to take that he needs to learn from his mistakes and say, mea culpa, you're right, instead of like blaming other people. That is the thing that gets me. Yeah, leave um, that the German Tom. That's what he does best. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, you know, you have done so well. You actually won Top Chef Buddha. You are allowed <laughs> to have a little bit of grace. Um, so anyway, the, the, the next, the most recent week, I was really excited about because it, it seemed like this was actually the craziest, like, most difficult challenge to, in my eyes, which was um, they had to, it was Indian week or whatever. Uh, so they had to make a tali. Um, and, and so it's a multi-dish, you know, meal that includes what, six tastes. And, you know, they could do everything according to traditional Indian food, or they could do the twist um, using another type of uh, cuisine. And the twist didn't actually work for these people. <laughs> um, I think it could have. Uh, I, I was feel very, like Sarah, the um, the did. American chef, right. she did a pretty good twist, which is to mix it with her southern food roots, right? Which, um, if we know our history, is also African American food. Uh, yes, yes. Well, that's the thing I think about this season is very clearly it it should it should show that everything is you know building on something else because 
Um, yeah. She said, oh, my God, this reminds me of something so, so-and-so. And I was like, yes, you see it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a connection between all the cuisines of the world. This is not something that just sprouted up in the South. Um, and so I'm glad with her. Um, I think the, the person I was talking about was Gabri, who he actually just had a lot of bad luck and bad timing. And that destroyed him because he could not then... Uh, continue to execute at a high level um, because he tried to do it using, you know, I think Mexican flavors, which is, which I think would have been fantastic, but he just burned two things in I mean, a row. Yeah. It would have been fantastic if he had only paid attention to what he was doing. And he I was, think... he, yeah, he was a little freaked out. <laughs> I mean, I've done that before. I've like lost track of like a boiling pot of water, but I I'm mean, not cooking for a hundred thousand dollars. You know, Right. I am not ever going to ever, enter a cooking contest that is timed probably any cooking contest but definitely not one that's timed <laughs> so yeah. that just sounds like horrible i would not do that yeah um but yeah. in the end we lost victoire who uh, um it was well, close i almost i because buddha was also on the bottom <laughs> and yeah. the only reason buddha didn't get eliminated because i thought it was it for him because not only did he like not succeed he also forgot to give padma her rice or no, chicken? She, chicken, but he also fucked up the rice. And yeah. I, I got to say, I've constantly pitched this story to the food team and on at my work, which is you need to write a story about how how easy it is to mess up rice and like the history of uh, people missing up rice on reality shows. Because starting <laughs> with Survivor, you know, <laughs> uh, where I think it was Chef Keith couldn't make rice and people were dissing him for it. And I was just like, rice isn't easy to make unless you have a rice cooker, you know, um, or at least you making it perfect. And so these chefs are not given rice cookers. Um, and so they have to pay attention. Like when he was talking about straining out water, I was like, why you strain out water from rice? You get just put in the right amount. Yeah. But then, you know what? I, I get it. If you don't have a rice cooker, you do have to pay attention and cook things differently. So um, when I cook rice on the stovetop, it definitely turns out different. <laughs> At the same time, Buddha is a Chinese brother. <laughs> And yes. he should know better. He he shouldn't <laughs> fuck it up that badly. Out of all of the chefs there, he should rice should not have been something that he. It was like clumpy and gross. Um, <laughs> Anyways, yeah, Buddha lives on for another day. We still have two Asians in the running. Three technically. Um, did you do you want to know what's happening at in the um, Last Chance Kitchen or not? No, because <laughs> at some point, well, we already saw from the previews that the next episode there's a double elimination so that also means we're going to get our last chance kitchen person yeah. back soon i'm so. worried buddha's paired up with gabri which i think is like oh god the person you don't want to be paired up with i feel like they do not work the right the way the same way like i like both of them i like their bo- both of their flavor profiles and their skills but personality and cooking dynamic wise uh-uh bad yeah. bad bad <laughs> go asian lives on at the very least, we'll still have one Asian running after next week. Hopefully oh. two. All right. We'll be back next week with our next installment of Go Asian. Uh, but now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about Suzume. Stick around. Podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. 
Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone, especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this episode, we are headed into the anime zone. We're talking about Suzume, um, or Suzume no Tojimari, the 2022 Japanese animated fantasy adventure film uh, written and directed by Makoto Shinkai, uh, best known for his previous works, Your Name and Weathering With You, about a 17-year-old high school student named Suzume Iwato, um, who teams up with a wandering college student, um, Sota Munakata, um, to prevent a series of disasters across Japan. Um, that is the basic synopsis of the film. But what the film really is, is a girl goes on a magical road trip across yes. Japan, chasing a talking cat with her chair boyfriend. I'm sold. <laughs> I did not. So this is my first Makoto Shinkai film. I have not watched his other works. And I know it's like, a, it's like much like Studio Ghibli films, it is Japanese like kind of art house anime films is mm-hmm. a blind spot for me, which it shouldn't be. But it is. So here we are. Well, I have to say, normally I'd be like, what? How have you not? But you know what? I haven't watched them either, which is weird <laughs> because I actually haven't watched a lot of anime in the past like decade. I think it's part of my job that I've just because it's not necessarily the number one thing that I've had to cover with TV. Um, I haven't sought it out. And but here's the thing. I should probably watch the films because at least they're one offs. Right. I think uh committing to a full series is what I've been kind of like dragging my heels for because you know I don't have time for that so I really should be checking these out they've been on my to watch list for a while now um so I I think I need to invest in whatever like there's some on Netflix for sure um but I think I might need to just do country roll for a month (laughs) yeah I mean what's your history have you seen the other Shinkai films I had not. No. And that's what is kind of pissed me off because I was like, how did I not? I was like, yeah. So I think I need to do that is a lot of these also get released into, you know, smaller theaters, indie theaters. And so you have to make a deliberate effort to remind yourself to go watch them. And I I don't do um, resolutions, but I think I need to start doing <laughs> start watching these um, because the other thing is, of course, you sometimes they go straight to video and you have to just rent it. And again, you have to remember because it might not show up on the streaming service that you already have. Yeah. Um, but so. but Koto Shinkai films tend to be like kind of event yeah. films, right? He's like the new. Um, Ghibli. Yeah. Like M- his films go to like they premiere at film festivals, right? They're like that kind of. Yeah. Like, like we all hear the names. Films. And so um, I mentioned this film is a 2022 film, but it didn't premiere in the States until this year, like this yes. past month. Um, and it's been highly, you know, every time there's new Makoto Shinkai films, everyone gets super excited because mm-hmm. um, from what I hear, Your Name is still like some people's most favorite anime films ever. And, you know, his much like Ghibli films, it's, it's a strong argument for the power of animation as like a medium, right? Like animated films... Mm-hmm in the West, at least, is often relegated to children's Children. media, right? Yes. 
um, which isn't the case. I mean, it's still a little bit in Japan um, seen as kid stuff, but also there's enough people using animation as a medium to tell more mature stories or more complex stories. And, you know, Susan May falls into that category of like, this could have been an indie film. Yeah, uh, absolutely. If he wanted to do this as a non animated thing i could see this um being a very indie film i also think when if you're talking culturally you know in asia things that are cute are not you know relegated to childhood right (laughs) adults are very okay with having cute things and so sometimes that does play into animation as well yeah and we're starting to see a little bit more of that in the west as well right like netflix has been done a really good job actually doing more adult animated like series like um um what was the one based on league of legends um, arcane um yeah i think you know there's kind of a shift going right because there's been a lot of people who grew up on animation grew mm-hmm. up on adult swim shows like cowboy bebop and mm-hmm. big o who want to tell more mature stories with animation but i feel like the people making the decision right the people cutting the checks aren't there yet right because the people doing those checks are like in their 50s 60s plus right <laughs> and what if you're talking about um, the generations that have grown up on animation, like I'm probably the oldest generation, but all millennials and Gen Z have grown up with um, this sort of global sort of access to anime, but also like even if you're talking about K-dramas and things like that. So there's a vocabulary for this sort of foreign content that is accessible to you know this younger generation that these older folks don't really understand yet. So they're only gleaning every now and then because like Netflix is a global brand that, hey, this thing that we got from Japan is doing well or whatever. And so they're kind of <laughs> learning from that. Yeah. That's so smart. that's to say, we hope that as always, the studio execs take the right lessons from <laughs> yes, a film like Susan May. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if we were talking about adult animation, like, uh, Toucan Birdie is a series that Netflix only did for one season, but BoJack Horseman la- lasted like several seasons. So that's good adult animation. Um, but uh, I, I would love to see something more fantastical like a Susume. Something yeah. that's like a piece of art um, <laughs> visually. Like, you know, BoJack Horseman is art, but at the same time, yeah, I would love a one-off. And I think that would open, I don't know, creators. Yeah. Um, but back to Susan May. Um, what did you think? What, what, what are your general impressions of the film? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, it was weird because I, I, for some reason, was super tired when I watched this. I, had, <laughs> I, I did watch it in a theater that had um, at least the, um, uh, what is it, the lazy board type chairs. Yeah. Um, the only thing is, I was like, oh, shoot, this is making me sleepy. Because uh, so, <laughs> I always, you know, like at this point, Usually I buy food in the morning and I just eat it in the theater. I sneak How it in. How full was your theater? Because my theater, I watched, I caught a matinee on Monday morning and it was surprisingly full. Like What? Yeah. Oh no. I caught a morning matinee, matinee on a Saturday and it was like four or five people. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I had a good like maybe like 30 people in my theater. Maybe it's your location. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I was in Burbank. And so, uh-huh. yeah, I was not in a very hot spot for like Asian people. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it was all the, you know, white anime fans <laughs> among me <laughs> and then me. So uh, it was it was kind of interesting 
because of that just to see who was there um but yeah it wasn't that busy so yeah i was tired so i actually um part of me was like okay don't fall asleep and so at the beginning i was like what's going on but (laughs) i definitely got into it and it also made me more emotionally susceptible um Mm. To the storyline, which maybe on a normal day, I would have been like, oh, that was cute. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so uh, it it was, I mean, the number one thing is when we were talking about this girl goes on a road trip across Japan chasing a talking cat. The cat, we will talk about the cat, um, had the cutest voice. (laughs) Such a cute voice. Every time. And also because it was talking, it was just like, Suzume? You know, the whole time it was, I found this cat adorable, even though, yes, the cat was a jerk. Um, the chair boyfriend. Um, there is some body sw- switching going on, body souls in chairs. Um, that was very cute to me. I found it hilarious. I was, yeah, like I knew that Makoto Shinkai, he does like speculative fiction, he does science fiction, yes, mm-hmm. fantastical stories. Like all the stories have some sort of supernatural element to it. And I knew that Suzume had to do with like doors. So, mm-hmm. I originally, I came in thinking that it was going to be like some sort of multiverse story, ah. but it turned out to be like, oh no, the doors are just like the MacGuffin that you need to yeah. close you in order to solve, like to prevent natural disasters. Um, this story is actually just about um, a girl going on a road trip and bonding with her chair boyfriend. Um, yeah. And we'll talk more about like the romance plot because I, I do have some yes. <laughs> personal issues with it, um, yeah. but it wasn't what I originally expected. And that was actually pretty, pretty cool to me. I was like, Oh, so this mm-hmm. is what it is. And it kind of, kind of kept me on my toes, you know? Um, and the film definitely lives up to like the hype of like, this is some beautiful animation, like mm-hmm. the, the backgrounds, the movements and the food, like this film has very good food oh, animation tech. Like the food that, animation tech is a plus. It's plus, plus. that is super important to me because I think, I don't want to even just say because it's Asian, I want to see the Asian food. But I think also something um, someone tweeted out once when they're talking about fantasy novels is, you know, you go on a trek and then they're eating cheese. They're like, tell me what kind of cheese it is. It's kind of like (laughs) I feel like these are very important details to have when especially if you're doing a journey. And um, I went into this film cold. Actually, I tried not to watch any trailer. And um, I felt like I saw one headline and it said something about a chair. And I was like, no, I didn't want to know even that. So (laughs) um, the road trip aspect of it for me actually took me by surprise. And I was so I was delighted every step of the way when I was like, wait, where's she going? She took a ferry. And then we get to see this, like the trip on the ferry and the trip on the train. And all of a sudden there's a car and this is like, oh, okay, so where are you going? Yeah, we're treated to a road trip across from rural Japan to urban Tokyo, right? And yeah, I just recently went to Japan 2018 and definitely got to relive some memories of like visiting places, being on the bullet train, eating train sandwiches. Um, yeah. Oh, the Shinkansen, you have to eat, you know, get have to have that train food when you're there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really liked Suzume as our main character. Like her, like again, the animation, she's very expressive. She has a really like, I guess, cute quirks. Um, mm-hmm. You can definitely tell that she's like, a teen right she's a kid mm-hmm. who is just trying to just trying to live just trying to just keep up in this world right like she has a very tragic backstory um mm-hmm. which we learned that you know she lost her mother in the tohoku earthquake tsunami which you know was the thing that caused the, the fukushima meltdown and devastated like the northern japanese like 
ecology essentially um i actually didn't know that this that was going to be like the setup for no. this film is like <laughs> the huge like earthquake tsunami that happened back in i think it was like 2010 yeah i you know i was also surprised and um the sort of the magic and stuff that they are supposed to help prevent is to help prevent these actual natural disasters that you see so you see earthquakes and stuff like that but yeah the the thing that happens to her mom i was just like oh no <laughs> Like, yeah. what, where did this come from? But I, I guess, and they don't actually go into it super deeply, you know, even if you weren't aware of what the events were. Um, I think it was done delicately enough that you get sort of the impact of that grief and that sort of loss, but also it's very calmly and not overdone. There was no melodrama here. Um, yeah, and but at the same time, like that event has, you can see it has shaped the way that yes. Suzume acts and feels the world right and i mean this film is really more uh, a coming of age film than anything right mm-hmm. like it's about her um and i guess this is where i kind of run up into some of my like criticisms um is like i wanted to see more of that development from her um but the coming of age road trip like runs up against like the more supernatural storyline of the film which is um, Suzume is going around with her chair boyfriend, Solta, looking for these doors um, that only appear in like sites of urban decay, right? Abandoned schools, abandoned sites um, that summons a giant worm that creates earthquakes and ecological disasters. Um, and so it's their job to go and close these doors using the memories of the people who were there before. And there's a lot of really cool themes Throughout the film, like the ecological themes, the themes on memory, urbanization, um, coming of age. But I feel like at times I was watching like two separate movies, right? Mm-hmm. Like the themes just don't, at least for me, they don't coalesce seamlessly enough for it to be like one cohesive narrative. Yeah, I think because there's such big themes, I think um, maybe like I know you can't necessarily separate the natural disasters from each other because they were related. But at the same time, I think one sort of big general grief natural disaster would have been enough to kind of get the point and be able to build the rest of the story. Um, And I I felt like after a while, I was just watching it and I didn't need to understand the magic. I didn't need to understand what she had to do, what her goal was. It was just kind of like, there's something horrible going on. Uh, she has a personal relationship, sort of the way she's dealing with it. And there's a road trip that's needed. <laughs> so it was kind of like, and and I don't, I hate to do that, but I almost had to sort of separate myself from um, all the, the big plots that didn't quite fit together because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to sort of enjoy it. Um, so yeah, I, I just like, I put some of this other stuff, the important themes in the background, um, for myself. <laughs> yeah. I wish I knew what it was Susan was overcoming. Mm-hmm. Like she was overcoming like capital G grief, but like specifically what are like the things that she yeah. learns from people, right? Because she meets a really colorful cast of characters throughout her road trip, right? Like every stop. Um, this film really had a really episodic feel to it. And I kind of feel mm-hmm. like it would have probably worked better as an episodic. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if they had like little chapter headings, that would have been nice, like every 10 minutes and like, uh, so-and-so who runs the shop, you know, yeah. um, because I also felt maybe because of the the big grief stuff, 
the um and then also the supernatural stuff and then also the real life stuff um i actually didn't get to meet the characters enough um there's one that i remember um distinctly because he had the convertible <laughs> he was really <laughs> funny but i remember the first like one of the ones earlier i was just like so I see that she has a friendship, but I don't even know who she, this person is. And I didn't get a feel for her. And there's some others where I was like, I kind of see what's going on here, but I don't remember them. And yeah, so I, mean, I wanted more time with them. Yeah, they're showing the kindness of strangers and people living. Like, they're all the people living on the margins, right? Like, uh-huh. um, And there's there's things there, but how they coalesce with Susan May's own development. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it. I didn't. It was a little shallow, which Mm -hmm. is disappointing because I feel like there's like there's something there. Right. Like there's something that that I want to see. But yeah, it's just which is a little disappointing. Um, There's just a lot stuffed in. And I felt like if they took a few things out, we could have like had more time with some of the things we were curious about, like more character work. Which brings me to Susan May's relationship with Sulta, her her chair boyfriend, who is, you know, the he's not an exorcist, but like the. I guess the traveling shaman who's closing these doors to prevent natural disasters gets cursed into becoming fused with her childhood chair. (laughs) And so you get a really couple of really great scenes of this chair autonomously moving around, chasing the cat Mm -hmm. that cursed him. Mm -hmm. And those scenes are all really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get what they're trying to do. Like they're, they bond on this road trip. It's a pretty common, like odd couple road Mm -hmm. trip trope, right? Which is, you bond with your partner as you go on a road trip and you see other sides of them and then, you know, you fall in love or whatever. And that's what happens in this film. But I, I don't know. Something about it just didn't seem right to me. I think, number one, like, I get that you can fall in love with someone even if they're in a chair. <laughs> but, but I don't think they needed the romance. I think if they bonded and just became really good friends... I, that would have been just as satisfying. And if we wanted to write fan fiction in our head after the movie and made them fall in love, that would have been fine. But I think the the falling in love part is also where I kind of got stuck. Um, this is this is actually a very difficult things, uh, thing for films to do, which is why there are a lot of rom-coms that are just utterly horrible because you don't <laughs> understand why these people fall in love. But they have like 90 minutes or so or maybe two hours these days to do so and so there's a lot of like shortcut character work that they need to do and here you didn't really get that because they're so busy closing doors um that when he was a chair also he wasn't giving me that much personality so um, yeah there wasn't really a lot of chemistry between her and the chair it was Uh, weird i mean she found out he was gonna be a teacher i guess but Later, it just, yeah, yeah, there wasn't enough, like, even if they gave them one more, maybe mission before he became a chair, or if they even upped, like, they had a really cute sort of sequence of events where she includes the chair in sort of her, like, yeah, uh, they needed more, more they needed more heartfelt conversations, heart to hearts, like, you know, conversations under stars or whatever, like, like, deeper conversations that, will lend to a yeah. closing of the hearts, right? Um, right, right. If you're going to make them fall in love. But even, I, w- I would even say that goes for friendships too. Like, Yeah. Um, and so just... here's the the thing that I read somewhere. I, I don't remember where um, I read it from. But apparently, originally, Solta's character was supposed to be a female, another female. Mm. 
and but the studio head, and this is why you, you <laughs> this is why studio heads everywhere just suck, right? Yeah, they did not want that. Like I guess you know the general. Japanese moving going public was not ready for Yuri content. Um, so, <laughs> wait, wait, was she supposed to be female and a love interest? Yeah. Oh. oh so Shinkai said, "All right, I'll make the love interest a boy, but I'm making him a chair." What? Right, because that that way you also don't need a chaperone. Because <laughs> if you're going on a cross country trip with your like love interest, at least making him like a chair. Means that nothing, no hanky panky is going to go on. Except she did <laughs> sit on him once. Uh, yeah, and she did kiss him. Um, I was pleasantly surprised that this film, this anime film, had essentially no lewd scenes. Yeah, I think that showed a lot. Of, that shows a lot of no restraint no, for <laughs> no, no upskirting. No, you know, like. Uh, nakedness when she's transforming into something or when yeah. she gets shocked by something. Yeah. Which I guess if you're trying to follow the footsteps of a Ghibli, that's the way to go, right? Because the yeah. moment you have one of those scenes, immediately your credibility is shot. Uh, it's, but it's a really good point because like, you know, growing up with anime, you either had the anime that like with everyone was incredibly well endowed or you had the adventure stuff. <laughs> Where, you know, they're like kids and like um, fighting things. So uh, it's there's to a certain extent you kind of get I don't want to say get used to that, um, but or and try to just ignore it in order. Yeah, it's one of the things you kind of just like you you deal with. You don't. Yeah, you deal with it. It's just something that exists that you're not a fan of, but you deal with it to get to the good parts. Right, right. But it does suck that it's there. And Absolutely. when it happens, you're like rolling your eyes like, oh, God. Yeah, you know? so you're do right. Do we need another I'm... obscure? Do we need another boob comparison scene? Like, there's all these like tropes that just doesn't need to be there. Yeah. I So I'm glad that this didn't. Um, so this was pretty family friendly if you are open to your kids watching something that includes grief and dead parents. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lot of uh, Disney and Pixar these days. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I will say the emotional scene at the end did get me a little teary because, you know, oh, it got the music me. swells. You like see like the you see the loop start to close. and You're like, oh, yeah. The um the ending theme was very good. I have to say <laughs> the, uh, musically. I was just like, oh, they got me with the music, too. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And that hook, the 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 theme mm-hmm. of the film, is yeah. stuck in my head even today. Um, yeah. Not helped by Han dropping <laughs> the acapella version in our our group Slack. Um, the part of my uh, unfortunate, I guess, habit of K dramas now is that I'm following so many um, people on Instagram, <laughs> and that has now created an algorithm that sends me dance um, challenge videos. And now singing ones because I started following certain singers from uh, K-dramas. <laughs> and so this person is, I don't know if she's Korean or not, but she also uh, sings in multiple languages. And apparently her uh, pronunciation of this Japanese, um, the Japanese lyrics were excellent, according mm. to one commenter. <laughs> commenter. <laughs> but she's a, she has a beautiful voice and she does, uh, she did three part harmony with herself in this video. So um, I, I don't know, like, I don't even know her name, but Yes, I did drop it in the Slack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for it that. It was beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful, but now it's it's stuck in my head. 
All right. So um, before we call it a discussion, um, gotta ask: Is Suzume good pop? Uh, yes, I am such a fan now, um, and uh, despite all of the inconsistent things, the sort of weird pacing and stuff like that, that are very you know noteworthy as far as like yes um those are problems but i did overall think it was beautiful i got emotional which is important and um i think maybe you know like how i was saying like you don't need to pay attention to the the nitpicky things about this or that i was like it was a vibe and it was a good vibe um it made me just sort of contemplative um and afterwards i found someone else who had watched it and we talked about it a lot so it was just I I definitely want to get more of this content. Yeah, um, I thought it was really fun to watch as well. I know I I had some issues with the pacing and the characterization, but the animation was amazing. Um, the overall film as a whole was was really well done, and Makoto Shinkai is known to create films that make you cry and he does that really well and it does make me want to go back and watch his earlier films, specifically Your Name. I think. People have said that that film is still probably the best of his work. And I want to see what a Makoto Shinkai film is at like the top of his game. Yeah, I think I'm going to watch Weathering with you first because um, I kind of want to see that progression and then end on a high note. And I'll watch your (laughs) name after that. So I will. I'm going to note these down. All right. Well, that'll do it for our discussion of Suzume. Um, It's out now on limited release. And eventually, I think it's going to stream on Crunchyroll. Um, So definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, Before we go, Han, if people want to find more of your thoughts, where can they go? For now, I'm on Twitter (laughs) still at Hanonymous um, until further notice. I mean, they got a new CEO. Surely she can't be as bad as the last one. I mean, she maybe won't be as incompetent, but she could still be bad in a different way. So we, we'll see. Uh, I got an invitation to Blue Sky. I hear it's not great, but, you know, I'll, I'll try it out. Um, I'm also actively looking at stuff on Instagram. So you can also still find me at Anonymous there. Uh, I'm going to try to post more. Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, I guess, at Marvin Yurit. You can find our show on Twitter at Good Pop Club. Um, as always, we are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. And you can follow Asian American hosted podcasts by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, thanks for listening to Good Pop. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with Jess back. Um, but until then, um, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. And we're the hosts of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Each month, we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a variety of genres, including contemporary and historical fiction, sci-fi and fantasy, romance and cozy mysteries, and so much more. Our past book club picks have included Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Ribeye, Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, and The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Every month, we also go through the latest news in Asian American literature, as well as chat with some awesome Asian authors about their works. 
So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com, and you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.